Hello and welcome to Hunter Gathers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. We are coming to you live from Gonzo Fest in Louisville, Kentucky, and the regular listeners will know that we've promised. This is our 50th show, and when we began, a good friend and mentor said that I should not judge myself until the 50th episode, and then I'd be okay. So this is episode 49 of our multiple-part series, so listen closely. Somewhere in here, I get good, and I can't wait because it's been, you know, as you know, tedious. We're here reversing roles a bit. I'm going to welcome Christopher Tidmore, my uh, co-host and producer, because he is going to introduce the first guest from Gonzo Fest. And I can honestly say Curtis Robinson and I traveled all the way to Louisville for me, a New Orleanian, to have somebody from New Orleans. Yeah. In fact, not just any somebody. Well, you've got to admit, I've done pretty well. I've only mentioned it seven times. (laughs) (laughs) T.R. Johnson is quite literally the guru on New Orleans literary history. Thank you. Um, That is the name of his most recent book. It was also New Orleans Writer City and other comments. So it's a man who understands literary history is here speaking about one of his idols who he knew, and of course, Curtis knew very well, and that's Hunter S. Thompson, hence why we're at the 10th, and so they tell me, final Gonzo Fest. We'll we'll actually find that out in the next couple of parts of this episode. But T.R., you came up on stage, and you talked about, in the first panel here at Gonzo Fest here in Louisville, about Hunter S. Thompson as more than just a writer, yeah. as a, more than just even a literary figure, as a character That's of right. literary yeah. history yeah. in America that helped create our American mythos. Can you talk yeah. about that? I'd be happy to, yeah. Um, it's, you know, I have not participated in Gonzo Fest before, so I'm so happy to be you know, squeezing into the last one and so grateful to be a part of this and, and to have a chance to kind of work out a few thoughts about him. And yeah, the, a point I made during that panel that maybe I can enlarge upon a little bit is that as fabulous, a brilliant a writer as Hunter so often was, and 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 it and and you know piercing into just true poetic vision it seems to me on on many many occasions and why we love him so much there's a broader achievement here that i think we're only beginning to kind of comprehend and at least me i'm only i'm only now beginning to comprehend it is that hunter turned himself into a character in american literature and it was something that it takes great courage and great risk to live the way he did as a kind of master of the art of provocation, forcing people to react to him and then playing with their reaction or not in one way or another, and basically leaving an indelible imprint on everybody he got anywhere near, uh, just over and over and over again, decade after decade after decade. It's a it's an incredibly brave thing to do. It's an incredibly risky thing to do. You can imagine it could have gone sideways badly any number of times. Yeah, you know, it, one can imagine imagine what you know there's guns there's drugs there's trouble and he lived that very high risk way and in so doing became a kind of permanent part of the he's, he's a character in the American imagination now that will be with us forever. I think he's ultimately going to, you know, as iconic and legendary as like Rip Van Winkle or Edgar Allan Poe or Harry Houdini. He's a permanent part of the cultural landscape of the United States and a permanent part of he's one of the fixtures through which we imagine who we are. The, that's on top of what he achieved as a writer. He's just inhabited the world and lived his life in a way that is... Uh, out of all proportion to any single living human being could could imagine being he it was a kind of theater that he was a master of and carried out uh, for 40 40- 
40, 40 plus years. <laughs> we told you we're coming to you live from Gonzo Fest, and that, that, that glass breaking is not a sound effect. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that was the ghost of Hunter. That was uh, Umpa coming in, so yeah. it's uh, definitely. But uh, that, that actually is kind of an interesting thing. So, so many people at this at, at Gonzo Fest are comparing Hunter as one of the legends. I mean, you were t- Curtis. You and I were talking yesterday about the fact that in a hundred years, people will know who Hunter S. Thompson is in ways that other authors are forgotten. I'm curious. I always compared Hunter being, well, the literary geek that I am to, like, someone along the lines of Ambrose Bierce, who was huge in his time. But more and more, based on what I'm hearing, and I say this with great love, is a love of Hunter's writings, he is... Is he or is he our modern Mark Twain? Wow. That's a great question, and I think that um, he may be. Um, I think that there's a—let me speak to it in a couple couple of ways. I think of Hunter increasingly— very much like the Mark Twain who gave us Huck Finn, as a product of a certain kind of river town. That is to say, river towns like Louisville, like New Orleans, are places where there's sort of a historically kind of a transient population, young men floating in and out, and young men who are untethered are going to be inclined to drink and gamble and carry on and so on and so on. Hunter is a a product of a river town in, in every way from the you know, the kind of devil-may-care semi-criminality that hovers around him all the time, the partying, the um, footloose adrift kind of uh, vibe, is, is feels like Huckleberry Finn transposed into the latter half of the 20th century to me. In that sense, there's the Twain connection. Also, the sardonic wit that is a, tw- a, a trademark of Twain is, is Hunter's stock in trade in, the, in a deep way. And the, you know, there's a famous Mark Twain line. He says, you know, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. And, and Hunter is that person completely. A very uneasy relationship to, say, academics who are in charge of sort of preserving the past and, and cultivating a canon in one way or another, or debating it and so on. And Hunter, I feel, is a, I teach American Lit courses from time to time. In fact, a lot of, a lot of times. At, and at, we can say at Tulane University. At Tulane University. Yeah. And I, I have not yet quite managed to put Hunter on my syllabus for American Lit. I've wanted to, but in a rush of getting that class together, I haven't quite figured out how to find the right piece to put in, precisely because he is a vexing, sort of troubling figure to a lot of contemporary cultural concerns. He's a gun nut. And we're living in a time where we got a gun problem. We're living in a time where there's a horrific opioid crisis, and he's a drug enthusiast. There's also um, a pretty rough-and-tumble language around race. At least it doesn't square with the kind of you know, the, the kinds of ways English departments want to speak about these things. And so it's it's difficult to do Hunter in an English department, uh, you know, and, and preserve and, and, and advance the, the, tradi- uh, his, the reputation that way. But he's so powerful and so extraordinary through events like this that in some ways he doesn't really need university seals of approval to be kind of kept in circulation uh, because he, he did it himself. He, you know, he kind of made his own way. You know, didn't really go to college uh, and... Um, made his own path uh, independent of institutions in a way that in some ways fulfills kind of some of the, the highest American fantasies of freedom, of being outside institutions, outside the kind of correct and proper, well-mannered ways of comporting ourselves around great literature, capital G, capital L. He was, um, he was a true wild man and an American original in ways that um, we can't help but sort of treasure and love, even as vexing as it is vis-a-vis kind of modern manners in intellectual life. 
Well, you know, it's interesting from the stage. You you referred to him, I think, at one point as a performance artist. Yeah. Uh, I thought I think that's interesting because there's always this discussion. Um, did the persona take him over? Right. And I'm like, persona is one. That 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 is one way of looking at it. At the persona, but I always thought it was the the character itself. It was interesting. I was I was with Hunter on the phone when he was. Uh, when I would hang out there, and you know, I remember a, a conversation with Marilyn Manson. Um, Marilyn Manson did not consider himself a, a rock and roll artist. He considered himself a performance artist. And I can remember a conversation, quite literally, quite literally a vaudevillian. That's yeah. how he described himself. Yes, and. and so after that, we—that was always the thing of like, are they coming to to talk to me? Or are they coming to talk to that? I said, well, you know, when you published *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas* as Raoul Duke initially, in, in the, you kind of invite that kind of thing, don't you? And I think he was interested in that. But it's interesting, persona versus per, persona is such a negative kind of term, and uh, performance artist just isn't. Right, right. And I think it's so interesting. You know, I would assume that Hunter would have been very intrigued by Marilyn Manson, because I think that there's a way in which, as you know, Marilyn Manson as a very kind of shocking performance artist is in some ways dipping into the same channels that Hunter, in, in a different kinds of ways, was inhabiting. A shocker, a kind of um, a, a person who unsettles things simply by his presence. And... Um, it's fascinating, you know. Thinking back to Mark Twain from it, I, I, we mean Marilyn Manson, the singer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Marilyn Manson, <laughs> right, right. Um, and not other forms of Manson. No, right, no. right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I hope I hope we make that clear for sure. Um, but thinking about the connection to Twain again, I know that Twain was um, frequently sort of on the road giving like talks and lectures before public audiences. Um, and um, Hunter, you know, that was a income stream off and on through the years. Uh, For the same reason, they were broke. Exactly. Uh, you know, right. uh, Twain lost all the money trying to uh, create a printing editor. He created a publishing company and then gave Ulysses S. Grant the greatest deal in the history of time, so much deal that he lost everything he owned. Right. Yeah, so... And would right. never be heard from again. Yeah, except but I he, thought about him yeah. a lot when, uh, uh, you know, you when uh, Leonard Cohen lost all of his money and had to go on the road. I'm like, he's, he's doing a Mark Twain here. That's right. So it's That's pretty right. good. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but, you know, it's it's interesting also that when you talk about um, the the difficulties, the cultural difficulties of adding Hunter Thompson to, to your class. Mm -hmm. Could you read uh, Could you read Huck Finn aloud today by yourself in front well, of your class? Yeah. Um, you know, there is the very, the very singular and particular concern. I th think that a little rusty on there, Twain. We mean the the uh, particular character uh, name. Well, I'll just say N-word for those of you who uh, uh, are the N-word Jim. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, and I find that um, my personal take on that is that obviously we have to be endlessly careful with our language and the and the ways that that particular word is indissolubly linked with bloody violence and terrorism and that we need to uh, honor the, the truth that that's how it will land in the ears of many of our students and that said I, you know that word shows up in Faulkner and I've, I teach Absalom Absalom uh, quite a bit yeah that's and, a good point and that, and that word is good. in there a bunch but it's always coming from the mouth of a particular character as mostly author himself and that that's how you, with 
Absalom. Or the name of a character, right. a major character in the book. And so typically, I think when people teach Huck Finn, they, they say Slave Jim. Um, and uh, They would actually change that, you think? I th I th well, yeah, that's, what, that's what we're doing now? I think so. I think so. But and that's, It's tricky and, and, and uncomfortable. But I think that I have not found a way to finesse the ways Hunter is... Uh, I just need to spend, honestly, I just need more time. I'm sure I can find a piece. As someone, I used to try to help edit Hunter's work, and it's, it's deceptive because you can change one word, and I mean a tiny word, and the entire sure. uh, paragraph and page and chapter just sure. falls apart. Sure. It's, sure. it's so interesting, the dynamic. The example I always give is any of us can might think up to describe someone as having the loyalty one would expect from a snake, but right. Hunter said he has the loyalty of a rented snake. <laughs> And it's just the world of difference, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's a world yeah. of difference. Yeah. I do want to ask one quick question because I always think, I, I think of the, the Mark Twain as the answer, mainly because Mark Twain was a newspaper reporter. Yes. And so yes. Uh, both Curtis and I are, are refugees from journalism. I still commit acts of journalism from time to time. Right. He, he manages to avoid it until it's really big, and then he does it as well. Right. That aspect came to it, but it was also the serialization mm -hmm. of story. Right. And uh, the other comparison I always make of Hunter is Charles Dickens. Now, people, are, people will say Charles Dickens, mm -hmm. he's a fiction writer. Hunter's not writing fiction. Both of them are creating characters that are speaking from their own experience. Right. David right. Copperfield is right. Charles Dickens. Right. I mean, in so many different right. ways. Raul Duke is that. Mm -hmm. And they're both performing on stage, and they're both creating characters to, uh, that of themselves, almost right. caricatures, sure. to sell sure. them. And they're both touring the West, and they're both going to... I think that, that I, that's why I was so intrigued by the way you put it, T.R. Johnson, about the concept of Hunter creating this caricature of himself to say right. it, because it, right. it, the, some of the greatest authors really did that. They were performers right. and frustrated actors. Mm -hmm. Dickens was a frustrated actor. Twain, for the most part, was... Hunter Thompson definitely was. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so. it's a great point. And I think, you know, thinking of, of Dickens, too, in these terms, it's the doing... Portraits of society, you know, looking, trying to sort of capture the truth of a society. That was absolutely kind of Hunter's sort of self-assignment in the Vegas book and, and throughout, of his, throughout his journalism, it seems to me. And, and that, you know, building, you know, characters, particularly out of themselves, of themselves, as a way of getting at some deep truth about society. One of my favorite Hunter lines is, I'm a roadman for the lords of karma, which has came kind of late. One of the last of his real gems, it seems to me. But um, he's out there. Like a roadman, a roadie, running around the West and college campuses, uh, stirring up trouble and sort of trusting the fates will all allow things to play out in a way that rewards the good and punishes the evil. And that he was doing the very dangerous, high-risk work of throwing himself kind of over the waterfall into the realm of consequence, or as he calls it, the place of definitions. Yes, you know, yes. It's rubber a, hits the road. You know, and, and speaking of the visits... Uh, particularly like to the college campuses, could, could Hunter, I mean, he, he appeared on campuses dozens of times to students. Could, could you book Hunter Thompson onto to that campus tour today? Probably, probably, because his, his reputation as an artist and as a reporter are substantial enough, and his literary achievement is widely embraced enough that he is not someone who is speaking on behalf of values that are antithetical to a liberal arts college, you know, a liberal arts education, let's say. Um, he is not advocating race hatred. He is not advocating gun violence, things like that. And, and therefore, I think that there would be room for him. Now, 
you know, at some campuses, it's such a, you know, booking speakers is a real hot button issue and a, and a flashpoint for all kinds of protests and, and dissent. Um, but I think that Hunter, Hunter's charm and large heartedness ultimately and his wide open sort of Americanness, a kind of Whitman like uh, embrace of multitudes and an easygoing readiness to engage anybody would make him, I think, welcome, even if. Certain questions of, you know, again, I'm thinking of guns and I'm thinking of drugs. People are kind of in the post-Columbine era and in the opioid era. People are less less enthusiastic about that stuff than they were a generation ago. And and but I not I don't think he's in a place where he is on the wrong side of an argument at all. Um, I can't see Hunter being vilified for his politics by anyone in higher education. Uh, he was a, He's an advocate of, he's a, I guess you could say a libertarian and a kind of Darwinian in a sense, he might, he might say, uh, a roadman for the lords of karma. But I don't see him as being uh, someone who is in any way an enemy of the values of a liberal arts education. And going back to your point about the River City aspect, yeah, and yeah. of course, you think I'm thinking Twain and, and the idea he grew up, you know, in Missouri. He's right on the river, right. Louisville, is kind of a very similar type of experience. Yeah. But it also has something, and I have to, yeah, since you literally wrote the book yes. of the literary history of New Orleans, yeah. Hunter loved New Orleans. In fact, mm-hmm. Curtis was with him just a couple weeks before he died in New Orleans. The question that I get is. New Orleans and Louisville have something in common that I, even though I've been here before, I never really thought about it until the last few days. They're both southern cities that aren't quite southern. Exactly. Yeah. They're 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 both on the edges. Right. They're both they're both influenced with a, a core French history, but they right. both had a lot of people coming through, and in some ways that kind of port yet connection kind of explains Hunter Thompson in some ways. I think so. I've come to that just, you know, it took it took years of living in New Orleans before I could quite understand that aspect of Hunter. But I think it makes great sense that Louisville and New Orleans, I tell people, you know, I grew up, in fact, not far from where we're sitting right now. I remember this building vividly from my childhood and, and, and youth. And I lived here until I was actually in my early 30s. And so I, I have a lot of Louisville in me. But what it shares with New Orleans, obviously Rivertown, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Catholics. And like Rivertowns, they are kind of friendly to vice. And so Louisville, obviously, the whiskey and cigarettes and gambling on horses. This Growing up here was a, a, a perfect sort of preparation for a very happy life in New Orleans that I've come to have, you know. Um, it was just, it's, it just moved to the big leagues, you know. No, just, it was the natural next step. Yes, and yes. I, and I'm, I'm not at all surprised to hear uh, that Hunter re- reacted so positively to New Orleans. Some friends of mine bumped into him just shortly before he died at the Circle Bar in what is now called Harmony Circle, in those days Lee Circle. And he was uh, gracious and fun and a very cool guy, and uh, we lost him just very soon thereafter. I had heard a rumor that that Hunter had been talking a lot about wanting to move to New Orleans and live in New Orleans, that it was something he regretted that he had never lived there for an extended period because he felt like there was great subject matter for him there. As a Louisville guy, he was going to take to it like a duck to water, so to speak. And he certainly had things to say about Miami and things to say about Las Vegas. But um, I think that New Orleans was probably a missed opportunity for him. And in fact, from what I understand, it was something he explicitly had said that he regretted not having made time to kind of swoop in there and do do several years, um, you know, getting in there because it is uh, it's a 
it's a writer's city, as the title of New Orleans, a writer's city, is the title of my new book. He would have. Uh, Which is available at the Garden District Bookshop for anybody who wants at GardenDistrictBookshop.com. Oh, nice, nice. You know, you can segue, you can jump in. I say, you just go for it. Yeah, but I think he would have been. Um, he would have found a lot to do there and a lot to think about and a lot to talk about, and I, it might it might have been a kind of challenging environment in certain ways. I remember one year he tried to go to Jazz Fest and was grumpy that they wouldn't let him come in with his 357 Magnum, and they do they, they said, well, if I can't come in with my, my without my gun, I'm not coming in, and that you know he may have uh, I could I dare say that he would have met his match in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, certainly, it would have been a subject that he would have found a lot to do with, you know, pirate culture and the and the and the the sort of sportsman's life in the swamps and 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 the gun culture of Louisiana he would have taken to immediately the gambling culture around the sport the casino culture it's, it's a, you know Vegas on the bayou and then just as a Louisville guy I think he would have been very interested in this idea of a, a an urban center in the South that is not purely and simply Southern, but kind of bookend Louisville and New Orleans, as you say, kind of bookends of the South, kind of the edges of the South that are not not purely and simply Southern in the way that, let's say, Jackson, Mississippi is, or uh, Birmingham, Alabama, maybe an example, and so on. It's a it's a cosmopolitan and complicated place in a way, a Catholic places in some ways that most of the South isn't thought of. So he would have found a lot to connect with and respond to and sort out. Well, I have to say in defense of Birmingham, Alabama, he did also love Birmingham. Did he really? He loved Birmingham. He wrote a piece about a, a way to die going uh, naked off of uh, Red Mountain in Birmingham. If you, if you can look it up, it's a great, great piece. But the reason is I've once lived in Birmingham. I always complained that when I went from Birmingham, Alabama, and moved to Los Angeles, one of the one of the problems was that Birmingham was a 24-hour city, right? And Los Angeles is not. Okay. You know, so it was. Uh, uh, so I used to lament poor Birmingham. But I take your point that uh, Birmingham is certainly a southern city. Sure. It is not. It's not on the bubble at all. But. Uh, right. Uh, he did love that. And uh, I think the car that he mentioned was actually his Jaguar, but uh, I digress. That's the problem with Hunter Thompson stories is there, there are there's so always another one. many. Yes, yeah. there are. It's like eating potato chips. Uh, well, I do, I do have to ask because we are at the 10th, and I'm told by Ron Whitehead, final Gonzo Fest. Right. But, uh, I, think, I think Mr. Whitehead doth protest too much, but yeah, that's just me. We're, you guys having, go ahead. we're having debates over that. and um, mm-hmm. We've had a couple people come to us and say, if Ron won't do it in Louisville, what are you doing? So, you know, we're at it. But... Um, I, I am curious because you brought uh, the first panel at the uh, at Gonzo Fest was about the '96 mm-hmm. gathering. Yeah, and um, uh, I'm looking at Curtis. You have a hat that you're wearing right now, if I'm not mistaken. You're, you're the one person who wasn't at this '96 gathering, but you have a hat. I was not. I, uh, Hunter S. Thompson went to a uh, 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 landmark milestone reunion, and all I got was this. Kentucky cap, Love but it. I do still have the Kentucky cap. This was literally a gift he brought back because oh, I couldn't man. come. Oh man, that's fabulous. Well, and oh. I'm, cur- I'm curious about that event because I knew about it. I knew he came home. I knew the tribute. I'd, I'd heard a lot of Johnny Depp stories about yeah. that gathering. Yeah. I knew we've we've done a couple of episodes. What I didn't understand really, I, I, I had a vague notion, but I didn't really understand, was how influenced it was to other authors, other events, yeah. and to the city so much. Because yeah. 
let's let's just get in, and Ron is going to join us in the next episode and talk about this. Louisville didn't really embrace oh, God, Hunter, no, no. and I would argue yes. still hasn't. It really hasn't. Right. Oh, and it, that was the first moment. Right. That's we'll talk about the ambulance where they basically the mayor comes out and renames it Hunter's uh, Gonzoville and all this. But more importantly, it's kind of a seminal transitional moment in 1996. Right, you know, right. That's yeah. I, I saw it from the other end because I was working for Steve Ambrose at the time, okay. and uh, and Doug was going off to this thing, sure. and we were kind of busy trying to put together this museum right. at this time. So it's, it but it was it was this a lot of people who weren't really aware of Hunter, yeah, became aware because That's of this. Right. Can you talk about it? I'd be happy to. You know. One of Hunter's great lines, you know, he there's as I was saying, there's at least two dozen of these kinds of things. One of Hunter's greatest lines is, is uh, "The truth is never told between nine and five. And the people who are, you know, how should we say, the official power brokers and sort of shapers of civic identity are nine to five people. <laughs> and with all due respect to the power and money that they command, Hunter represents a different universe and speaks to and from a different universe. As we say in New Orleans, Hunter is night people, the night manager, you know. And um, and so the question of a city embracing some figure that is a native son is a nine to five kind of operation. And Hunter is one of the is just the kind of person who is is just it's going to be very hard for them to assimilate and swallow what he was. Um, it took until 1996 and. Um, it went off beautifully, that event. Um, and it's a particularly moving to me. I, I really loved Juan Thompson's memoir about growing up as Hunter's son. I was really hoping he would be here today to meet him, and maybe I'll meet him later in the weekend. But um, uh, I really admired what he did in that book. It's a beautiful piece of writing, a beautiful piece of storytelling. And very profoundly, he seems to say that it was at that event that he and his father reconciled after having been if I understand correctly, almost entirely estranged for about 15 years, uh, maybe more. He, his mother, Juan's mother, um, Sandy, uh, split with their son around, I want to say about 79 or 80, and that he stayed away from his dad for a long time, and that was a scene of reconciliation. So it was not simply uh, Hunter's returning to reconcile with Louisville and being embraced by Louisville, but it was a father-son story of incredible profundity. He had father and son had been, if I understand correctly, not in touch for more than a decade. And that happened on that stage in a way that's incredibly moving, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, not in touch, but then, then the, the, the piece that Juan read at that, I thought was, uh, just fantastic, and I think that that moved him closer in a lot of ways, and and in, in terms of uh, of words. But you know, that's uh, uh, nothing better than. I, I just thought it was a remarkable piece, and and yeah. I think you're you're accurate in, in yeah. that assessment. That yeah. uh, I think the question of that is, you know, how estranged they might have been. I mm -hmm. think there was contact and things, but but certainly after that, it was a different world. But I mean, it, it was partly a different world because one read. I thought it was one of the most touching things I'd ever I'd ever read. Yeah, I agree. It was so moving. Yeah, incredible. T.R. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on Hunter Gatherers. It's been a, I look forward to interviewing you uh, more about literary uh, figures in New Orleans and, hey, and guys, the academic let's get work. together in the Big Easy. What we, do you we, say? Sounds good. we had to come all the way to Louisville to have a New That's Orleans so conversation. So, yeah. but uh, thank you so much. Um, your, your books are obviously available at my bookstore, but also online and all this. New Orleans literary history, New Orleans writer city, and uh, and uh, frankly, I think you 
gave one of the most beautiful uh, tributes to Hunter Thompson as a signature finger. You really good. You had a great response, really. and you deserved it. Thank you. I really appreciate sense. that very much. we got to hang out in New Orleans, guys. It sounds like a plan. Let's do it soon. And we'll be back still at Gonzo Fest with Ron Whitehead in our next episode.